Well, good morning. Hard to imagine what's going on right now. If you were to ask me about this a couple weeks ago, I would not have believed it. Um, each day seems to change, I guess. The, the crisis and everything that's going on in our country, it's really kind of hard to deal with for a lot of reasons. There's a lot of fear going on. But at the same time, what you got to think about is there's there are victims out there. But we don't see the victims. Maybe you don't even know a victim. Every now and then I see somebody who has a relative or a friend who's being treated for this virus, but personally, I feel so untouched in so many ways. I'm not complaining. I hope it stays that way for me and for you too. But we're going on a journey that we never would have imagined. The reality is, you've been on this journey for quite a while. And it's not just the journey of this virus, this COVID-19. It's life. So the question I need to ask you this morning is, how is the journey going for you? Did you know you were on a journey? Do you realize that? Do you think about that about with your life? You are. You are on a journey. Because each day that you step into this journey of your own personal significance, your purpose, and your existence makes a difference. I kind of know that sounds a little too philosophical, but it really is what matters. And I think we need to get a grip on that, that this is what really matters most in life, is how are you doing on this journey? Some people, they're kind of mindful of the idea that they're on this journey, and they walk according to it, and they, they get it right. Then there's other people, I don't really think they think about the journey whatsoever. At the same time, they still seem to get life right. They still seem to be doing what they should be doing and living the way they should be living. Of course, then there's others who they just seem oblivious to the idea that they have any responsibility to focus on the journey. And they seem to get lost, confused, and fearful. Now here's the sobering reality about what I just said. Those three different groups I just described are all people who claim to be of faith in Jesus Christ. And you might ask, how can that be? How can you be a Christian and be somebody who is aware of the journey or oblivious to the journey or maybe even fighting against it? I think part of the problem is we have taken in our churches today and we have reduced the idea of faith to a set of acknowledged beliefs and doctrines. And maybe on the side you've got this idea of trusting in God to take care of all the scary things in life. Faith is so much more than this. Faith, first and foremost, speaks about your character, your internal values and passion in this life. Faith must be reflected in the depths of your heart in a way that causes you to give glory to God just because that is who you are and that's what your life is all about. You go back in scripture, you see this constantly. It's Genesis, famous passage. Abraham believed in God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That statement is repeated, not just in Genesis, but you'll find it over in James, you'll find it in Romans, you find it in Galatians. Here's the question though. Did you ever consider the life and character and the heart of Abram 
before God spoke to him. What was Abram like before that statement in Genesis chapter 15? I think James gives us a clue to that answer. Now let me read the James verse in, in its entirety. This is from James chapter 2 verse 23. And scripture was fulfilled which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Now what James makes the point that faith and works go hand in hand, he's quick to point out it's because Abraham and God were friends is what made the difference. James gets that second part of that verse from the prophet Isaiah. Back in Isaiah chapter 41, God himself makes the declaration, Abraham, my friend. We seem to have walked past this vital and indispensable aspect of faith. Because faith is a trusting relationship with God. He's not just our Savior, our Redeemer, our Judge, and our Creator. God, at least for those who have faith, is also our friend. He's our Father. He's our brother through Jesus Christ, and He's our companion through the Holy Spirit. Here's what Jesus says. This is my commandment. That you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for a slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. How many come to the church today? What do we do to become a Christian? We baptize people for the remission of their sins in order for them to be born again. And that gives them hope for eternal life. But when is it that you finally realize that you and God are joined emotionally in spirit and in your heart and mind? I don't know exactly when this begins for each one of us, but I do strongly believe that our journey of faith must have this bond with God if our journey is to have any meaning whatsoever. What is it that's going to make you a Theophilus? Remember Theophilus? Friend of God. So what is it that makes you a friend of God? Well, you might say daily prayer. Well, that can't hurt. How about memorizing lots of scriptures? That's always a good idea. Attend church. Sing songs. Listen to that preacher. Well, I'm sure that any friend of God would look forward to things like that. But there is a foundation that transcends all of this. What makes me a friend of God is when I share the same love, compassion, zeal, conviction, the same joy, the same values and goals that God has. Now, please don't reduce this to just the Great Commission or some doctrinal stance. But when what makes you you is God-given character, God's heart, and God's purpose, then you could truly call God your friend. And I'm pretty sure he will return the compliment. Let me give you a vivid example of this. The Apostle Paul, he's more than just a teacher of doctrine. He's more than an evangelist. He's more than a preacher of truth. He's more than the guy that wrote those 13 letters. Paul was a God lover. Paul was a friend of God. 
He was a man whose very nature reflected God's glory. Now, I'm not saying Paul was perfect. Absolutely not. I mean, it's not just referring to that Saul of Tarsus, the guy that persecuted the Christians. But Paul, the follower of Christ, was he perfect? Paul, the apostle, was he perfect? No. At times, he lost his patience. Just read about that slave girl at Philippi. Or remember when he confronts Sergius Paulus back in Acts chapter 13? Or how about when he shows up in Corinth in Acts chapter 18 and he is nervous? We see his impatience with John Mark. We see him very upset with the church in Galatia. But the depth of his character and his heart and soul were joined to the nature and the values and the purpose of God Almighty. It goes further than his love for the lost. Look at what describes Paul's character. Because when you read his letters, you're going to see Paul's love for people and Paul's love for life. You read about it, how he honors women, he honors men, he, he promotes the young, he promotes the old. He holds up the slave, and, but he talks to the masters. He is in love with the Jews, he is in love with the Greeks, he is in love with the poor, and he is in love with those that are of nobility. Paul was the kind of man good people love to have at their side. Paul was not just a friend to God. He's a friend indeed. And Paul's life reflects God's glory. Now, if Paul's a dinner guest or a prisoner, you'll see God's glory. Is he a stranger in a new city? You'll see God's glory. Because it was Paul's nature that no matter where he was or what he was doing, it was just his nature that he reflected the glory of God. Go over to Acts chapter 27 and you can see what I'm talking about. Because when you get to Acts chapter 27, this is towards the end, obviously, of the book of Acts. He's been through a lot. He's been through three different mission trips. He's been through all kinds of persecutions. He's spent two years in prison. And he's on his way now on a ship to Rome to stand before Caesar's tribunal. He's been preaching for a lot of years all throughout the Roman Empire. He has established churches where nobody imagined it would ever happen. And he's trained preachers, elders, evangelists, and now he's on his way to Rome. Luke, at this point, is the teller of the story. He's not just someone who is able to tell the facts of the story. Luke is a personal witness. Why is Luke involved? The reason why is because Luke is Paul's friend. And that's what friends do. And aside from Luke, there's also Aristarchus from Thessalonica. Now Luke starts the adventure with these words, just kind of a, a short phrase there at the very beginning. Here's what it says. It says, and when he decided, I'm sorry, let me start that again. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, and I got my little dot, 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 because the verse goes on. But what I want you to see is that we section right there. Don't pass over that too quickly. It's Paul that's the prisoner of Rome. It's Paul who is embarking on this perilous journey. Why are Luke and Aristarchus with him? I don't think it's their commitment to Christ or the message of the gospel that causes them to take this trip. Don't get me wrong. They're Christians. They're committed to the path. They're committed to the message. But that's not why they're there. Each 
one of these guys could have been off somewhere else preaching to whoever they chose. What puts these two men in the story is their friendship with Paul. And that friendship just didn't happen by chance. It's from years of sharing the road with Paul, sharing meals, sharing the hard work, the sleepless nights, and those long conversations. They shared dreams and goals. Years later, when Paul writes Timothy, Paul says this. He says, only Luke is with me. Luke just wouldn't leave his side. What about Aristarchus? Well, do your research. He and Paul had spent a lot of quality time together in prison. These men were friends. These two men risked their very lives for Paul because they were one in heart and mind and life. Paul's not abandoned. That kind of relationship comes from the core of who Paul is. Then Luke tells us about this Roman centurion named Julius. When you read the text, he seems to be a good and fair man. He was Paul's guardian and escort to Rome. Not Paul's servant, but Paul is the prisoner of Julius. At the same time, this soldier seems to quickly respect and admire the very prisoner he's guarding. When that ship makes a stop in Sidon, Julius allows Paul to go into the city, meet with people, receive care is the way it's recorded, which I assume means he was getting financial support. Why did Julius treat Paul with such consideration? I believe it is because of Paul's heart, Paul's attitude, his words, and his actions that are always glorifying God. Glorifying God so much that it causes this Roman soldier to respect and admire this old Jewish rabbi. We start on this journey, this, this, this voyage in chapter 27. And it starts off poorly, even at the very beginning. There's an ominous start as the winds and the waves are already confronting this small ship. Even causing them to modify their route so they can avoid the heavy winds. And then it seems only get worse. Surely you know the story. Just days later, the rough seas transform into a Eurokilo. That's the name for the worst of the storms of the Mediterranean Sea. They usually took place in the latter months of the year. It will be Paul who calms the sailors, the prisoners, and the other passengers, including Julius. The ship is breaking apart, but not Paul's bond with these people. It's the character of Paul that is respected and heeded, and it's the character of Paul that becomes the hope in a hopeless situation. Now, with all that storytelling, you might ask yourself, what does this have to do with me? I think when we think about what's going on today, it's time for our character, our godly character among God's people to shine. And our character, our godly character to shine among the world. Notice I didn't say that it's a time for faith. That word can be so poorly understood and misapplied. Of course we must trust in God. But what we see in the life of Paul is a godly man, a saint, who has been forged over the years to give glory to God, regardless of the situation, regardless of the events. We don't need monks or priests in long flowing robes to walk around among us. 
We need people whose natural character always glorifies the heart of God. You and I must exhibit the very meaning of life, regardless of the weather, regardless of the calm or the storm. Yesterday, today, tomorrow, we will encourage, we will guide, we will be those who lift up, and we will show the world the way of life because we are those who have overcome the world. Here's the question. Were you born again? Now, before you answer, remember, when Jesus challenges Nicodemus with these words, Jesus is talking about more than getting dunked in water or being able to recite some catchphrase of, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. Born again was life-transforming, so radical that the best symbol of this was being buried and then raised again. I'm talking about radical newness of life that is not predicated on the daily news or the daily weather report. My fear is that in a crisis like we have going on right now, the world fails to see our godly character. God is questioned as to why such horrible things happen. Now, for us to answer that discussion, that takes a long, detailed study, and I'm not sure that the world is really in the condition or mode right now to even listen to the answers we give. But your godly character glorifies the same God that this world is questioning. How? By living a life that has overcome the world. There are those who think that we can prove our faith by facing arrest or even death. And I'm here to say that if your character doesn't glorify God daily, regardless of the news, then in the face of a real dire threat like that, you will fail. So we don't wait for someday to live for God. We always glorify our Lord. We always glorify our God. Should we hold church services during such an epidemic? The answer has very little to do with taking a stand for our faith, but more of what is best for the good of others. Two weeks into this crisis, and I'm still not convinced I have the answers, at least not for our own particular group. But do we glorify God in our daily interactions, in word and in deed? That is something that should be at the core of who we are regardless. I'm afraid that this world crisis has compromised the glory of God, not because churches are shutting their doors of the buildings, but because Christians live in the same fear as those of the darkness. Many people of faith are not rising up to bless. They're not rising up to serve or to live like people who reflect the heart of God in whatever situation you find yourself in. Yes, the answer of how to glorify God will differ from saint to saint. Some can deliver food, donate blood, maybe volunteer to do something. Maybe we all need to maintain that distance physically from others just for the protection of the other person's health. Maybe some need to write letters, emails, make a phone call. And when you do those things, what you're doing is encouraging people, blessing people, a call for strength, a call for hope, and a call for faith. 
They don't need another phone call where somebody wrings their hands together and says, oh, what's the world coming to? We need God's glory in our lives now. In Acts 27, Paul guides people because of his godly character. Remember, it's Paul who said not to even take the journey in the first place. Paul wanted them to delay the journey until next spring because he could see the writing on the wall, I guess. Now, you might say, well, he by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he knew not to take that journey. I'm not sure if that's true or not. Do you realize that Paul had already experienced three shipwrecks before this one? Go back and read 2 Corinthians chapter 11. But Paul's overruled by those in authority. Later, it is Paul, in the midst of the worst of the storm, who continues to be that same godly man who encourages, who guides. And in essence, he saves the captain, the crew, and the passengers. To trust in God is more than a belief that God will rescue us from whatever predicament we encounter. To have godly character, to glorify our Lord, is to live in this world as one whose values transcend the world. We have overcome the world. This week, pick up the book of Philippians and read it, and digest the spirit of Paul's life as you go through every verse. And at the same time, make that spirit your own spirit. When Paul writes in Philippians, he's still in that Caesarean prison. Paul redeems hearts and minds, not just with scripture or commandment, but with the example of his own heart, his own attitude, his own way of living life. You get to 2 Timothy, there at the end of Paul's life, and he writes Timothy and he reminds him of what really matters. And he does so by quoting what appears to be a a first century Christian hymn. Here's the way it reads in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 through 13. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure with him, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Maybe somebody needs to learn how to put some music to that tune, and we can sing that wherever we go. But when you read that, go back and read it one more time, and notice what Paul did not say. He did not say, if we die with him. No, that's not what the song says. Read it again. It says, for if we died with him. Remember, it already happened. It happened before they sang the song. They already chose to be born again. It is the choice of the believer made long ago at that claim of faith, at that baptism, at that prayer. It's a description of how we live and who we are. Your character reflects God's glory and life is good regardless. Amen. Or as Paul puts it in Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. May God bless you as you reflect the glory of God in every single thing you do and every word that comes out of your mouth. May the world at the end of this crisis know the glory of God 
because they saw it living in you. Amen.